89.9 KUNM, Albuquerque, Santa Fe. Hey, y'all, it's time for Youth Radio. Oh, yes, Miles, it sure is time for the greatest show of all. I'm your host, Lucia. And I'm your other host, Miles. We have a phantasmagorical show for you this week that consists of some awesome, yes, awesome pieces. Coming up, we have a roundtable on the Da Vinci Code. Also, Mariah will be interviewing Daisy Thompson, the head of Indian Education for APS. But first, here's some insanely fantastic music coming up from Diana Baron Morizzle. Okay. Good evening. The first song I have for you is by Dirty Pretty Things. For those of you who are familiar with the Libertines, you'll know that Carl Barat, along with Pete Doherty, were very close and wrote all the songs for that band. But Dear Petey had difficulties breaking off with the heroine, and so the Libertines are now no more. Lucky for us, Dirty Pretty Things is still kicking, and... Off their album Waterloo to Anywhere, this is The Gentry Cove. Romney said to a promised land, run and find us a helping hand. Don't come back till the sun is gone, don't come back till the war is won. We all sit down with our hearts in hand. That was the marvelously untitled track 10 off The Airplane Over the Sea by Neutral Milk Hotel. And before that, we heard The Gentry Cove by Dirty Pretty Things. Now back to Lucia. And now, the one, the only, Mariah! Our very own Mariah will be interviewing Daisy Thompson, the Director of Indian Education of APS. Here she is. Good evening. I'm here with Daisy Thompson, who is the new director of the Indian Education Department of Albuquerque Public Schools. She is of the Navajo Nation and speaks fluent fluent Navajo. She has worked as a teacher, administrator, and consultant for educational programs across the Navajo Nation for some time. She has presented internationally about education services for Navajo children with and without disabilities. She is sought out for her knowledge of federal and state regulations pertaining to educational programs, including special education. Daisy brings more than 30 years of education to the department. She received her education specialist certificate in school administration from the University of New Mexico, a master's in special education from Northern Arizona, and a bachelor's degree in elementary education from Arizona State University. She is currently pursuing a Ph.D. in special education from the University of New Mexico. Today, I've asked Ms. Thompson to give a little insight to the Indian Education Department here in Albuquerque and a short summary of Indian education in general. So, welcome, Ms. Thompson, to our youth radio show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay, well, let's start off with you telling us what you know of the history of APS in Indian education. 
Well, the Indian Education Department of APS has a seal. On the seal, it has 1980 as the year that it was established. But in speaking with staff who have been working in APS for a number of years, for more than 20 years, they tell me that the um, Indian Education Department was established as late as 1973 or 1974. Apparently, in the beginning, the Indian Education Department was established, and then it went for a year, and then they gave it a rest for a year, and then it started up again. And so, because of that, the uh, the uh, as to the uh, the correct time or the year when it began is kind of sketchy. Well, somebody has the right date somewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, would you like to tell us what you know about the history of Indian education? Well, in 1972, the Indian Education Act was established as as a landmark legislation uh, after a uh, study that was done by a special subcommittee in 1969 when the committee came back and they issued a special report entitled Indian Education, a a National Tragedy, a National Challenge, after they had researched and reported on the educational situation of American Indian and Alaska Natives. And so that's what prompted for um, our legislators to establish Indian education in 1972. And then in 2001, it is the latest revision of the original statute under the No Child Left Behind, and it is uh, Title VII, Part A of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Thank you. And why is Indian education important to APS? Well, Indian education is important to APS because currently we have a total enrollment of 5,797 Native American students who attend the school district. Our department has established, uh, was established to support the educational needs of all Native American students who attend APS. Our staff also provide support for K-12 Native American students. We help ensure equitable and culturally relevant learning environments and culturally relevant teaching materials for all of our students in APS. We are also working on establishing partnerships through Memorandum of Understandings with Pueblos and Tuajule Chapter. And these MOAs addresses truancy and attendance issues. That seems like you're getting the, your foot in the door with that. Um, what are some of the services that Indian education provides? Some of the services that we provide to eligible students are uh, activities like summer school waivers, cap and gowns for graduating seniors, back-to-school supplies for all students who are Native, glasses for students who qualify for free and reduced meals, Navajo Nation clothing program for all those families who came in and registered in early fall. Partnerships, again, partnerships through MOAs. And also we provide certificates of Indian blood with Navajo Nation because there are 2,868 Navajo students and 514 of them are missing certificate of Indian bloods. And so I was in Navajo Nation last Friday uh, in talking with them and trying to get a representative or representatives out to APS so that we could help these families get them uh, get their children certified. We also assist uh, students, high school students, with their lab fees 
And an eligible student is one who has a completed 506 form and a certificate of Indian blood with their tribes. And that seems like a lot of kids that are missing out on some good things right. just because they haven't filled out their forms. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the programs that are provided? We have a resource. We, we have 13 resource teachers um, who provide literacy programs. And the methods and strategies that they use in the classrooms are, uh, are from the Orton Gillingham reading program. And they incorporate a lot of culturally relevant books, materials, stories into this literacy program. And, and these teachers are at three high schools, four middle schools, and seven elementary schools. And there are 10 home-to-school liaisons that support all 11 clusters. They also provide support to all the alternative schools and some charter schools. Okay, and um, what are some of the things that Home to School Liaison does? Well, they uh, provide support to students and families by making home visits. If a student is having, like, attendance issues, truancy issues, they will meet with school counselors. They will also uh, meet with the uh, student's teacher uh, on behalf of the uh, students and families. They will also... um, they, they are the link between the school and the home. They sometimes will attend IEPs. They address um, uh, academic issues, behavior issues that are experienced by the Native American students in the schools. Okay, and what are some of the things that a resource teacher does? Well, actually, what, what they do is that they are heavy-duty literacy their focus is reading, and they, uh, we have uh, some teachers at the high school who also incorporate a lot of cultural activities. For example, at Highland High School, there has been powwows, there have been winter stories, there have been a lot of culturally relevant, culturally related activities that have been happening at the high schools. Uh, and so there are some Indian clubs going on at the elementary schools and some at the middle schools, and in addition to their regular teaching job. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges for Indian stu- students? The biggest challenges that I see uh, in APS is um, attendance issues. And so that's the reason why our home-to-school liaisons uh, are out there to to deal with that. A lot of times they have to make home visits with, with families and sometimes um, uh, they have to be the advocate for the student and sometimes for the families. And the Pueblos, when we enter the memorandum of agreements with the Pueblos, that's what they address because they want their students to um, excel academically. And so you can't learn if you're not in school. And along with that, do um, Native American students have a high dropout rate? I think that seems to be the issue, too. Although we will be uh, meeting in February and reviewing a lot of data within our department and with the uh, um, research department of, of APS. And so we will be going over attendance data, truancy data, graduation data, Um, we'll be looking at data. 
And being on the um, the Indian Education Committee, um, having talked to them in the meetings about the um, evaluation for the parents, do you um, want to uh, talk a little bit about that and what that might achieve? What we are planning to do uh, from the Indian Education Department is that we will be um, implementing a comprehensive needs assessment, which will go out to um, K through 12 students who receive services and to the schools that have high Native American populations and also to parents. And what we want to look at is uh, how can we strengthen our programs and how can we better meet the needs of our students in these schools? Okay, and are there any events happening within the next month or so that you would like to highlight for the Indian Education Department? Yeah, we have a Miss Native APS pageant that is scheduled to take place at Albuquerque High School on January 26th. There are 10 cont contestants. There's Ashley Abeda from Albuquerque High School. She's representing Isleta. She's a 10th grader. We have Noelle Begay from Cibola High School, who's Navajo. She's a 12th grader. Leanna Casus, Cibola High School. She's Navajo, 11th grader. Sarah Shinomia, Manzano High School. She is Laguna and Navajo, 12th grader. Ashley Hedish, Cibola High School. She's Navajo, Comanche, German, 11th grader. Roberta Joe from Del Norte High School. She's Navajo. She's 11th grader. Carlia Lee Minam, Sandia High School. She's Navajo, 12th grader. Jacqueline Redhouse, Del Norte High School, Navajo, 11th grader. Lene Sandoval, Albuquerque High School. She, she's representing San Felipe, Navajo, 9th grader. And also Samantha Yazi from West Mesa High School. She's Navajo and a 12th grader. And so we have those 10 young ladies who will be uh, trying out on Friday evening at Albuquerque High School. And in addition to this, on the 27th, there will be an APS student powwow to honor the outgoing 2006 Princess Victoria Garnet Minthorn and all Native American students who attend APS and students with 4.0 GPAs and perfect attendance will be recognized at the powwow, which will be at the armory. Another thing that's coming up in February is the Indian Education Committee meeting at Hayes Middle School on February 14th. And these meetings begin at 4 p.m. There is a seven-member committee with five adults and two parents. Well, actually, I take that back. The five adults are parents. And there are two student representatives, and Mariah is one of our student representatives. Uh, the 506 forms are due from all Native American students who are lacking this form on February 6th. And we also have the Navajo Nation clothing uh, is now available for those parents who submitted applications in September 2006. They are at the Indian Education Department to be picked up. And we are also planning right now the first annual parent conference, and we have tentatively scheduled that to take place on June 8th. And, of course, the first annual student honoring powwow on the 27th of January. Okay. We've been speaking with Ms. Thompson, Daisy Thompson, the Director of Indian Education for APS, 
Um, I would like to thank you, Ms. Thompson, for being on our show, and I hope that people benefit from this. Thank you, Mariah. Um, it was my pleasure. <laughs> yep. And I just wanted to say that if you have any um, questions, I would like to contact the Indian Education Department. Their phone number is 505-884-6392. And back to you, Lysia. Thanks, Mariah. And that was Mariah interviewing Daisy Thompson, the Director of Indian Education for APS. Cool, huh? And now here's more music with Diana. All right, next up we're going to hear Joanna Newsom off the album Milk-Eyed Mender. This song is called The Book of Right On. Next up, we have a wonderful roundtable on The Da Vinci Code, hosted by Lucia. The Da Vinci Code is a somewhat controversial novel by Dan, by Dan Brown. It explores the relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene under the guise of a murder mystery. Beware, in this next piece, there will be many spoilers to those who have not read this book. Okay, today I am here with Michael, John Cullen, and Kyle. How is The Da Vinci Code controversial to you guys? Let's start with John Cullen. Well, for me, when I originally read it, I was around 14, and um, I'm Christian, and it sort of was like, oh my goodness, what? Because it was saying that, you know, Jesus was married and he had a kid. But now that I've matured, I'm 16 now, and for me, it's not that big of a deal. Like, oh, so Jesus was a family man. Nothing's wrong with that. But some people are like, oh my goodness, will the madness end? And they get very... Very just upset or flabbergasted about it. Michael? Well, the book was controversial to me in that not only was it um, shaking up these uh, original ideas of religion that are just kind of taken for granted by everybody who practices them, but also that it was, it suggested that there's all these secret organizations that are. Um, keeping these secrets with them or, you know, and the other ones that are trying to expose it, such as Opus Dei, trying to, <laughs> killing people too, <laughs> so that they can obtain the secret and keep it and keep it to themselves. And then the Priory of Zion that supposedly has this deep, dark secret about Jesus and Mary Magdalene and whatnot. So that's pretty elaborate. And with all the theories that Dan Brown, Dan Brown presented, although very, very inaccurate, are pretty interesting to mull over. So, and they did create a stir in the community. So, this is Kyle. Um, personally, the Da Vinci Code wasn't too personally controversial, but I found it really kind of interesting to ponder all these different ideas, like Michael said, because even if they weren't necessarily true, it's it's not like this is something that the church would have put out for everybody to read. So, it's just kind of an alternative. Um, viewpoint because personally I don't regard the Bible as being much more than you know a work a work of fiction like it doesn't seem to me like it has as much historical uh, accuracy 
as other books. So seeing something like Dan Brown's novel, which to me fell under the same kind of category, was just um, just offered uh, some other interesting things to consider. Going back to what Kyle said about Opus Dei and the Priory of Sion, um, are those religious cults like even real? Do they exist? Um, this is John Gwynn. I actually looked up the Priory of Sion, and I found out it's not even real. It was created in either 1956 or 1957 by a man who wanted to become king of France. And so, no, it's not real. I'm guessing that didn't work out for him. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's definitely not how it's portrayed in the book. So, and then you've also got Opus Dei, and um, in real life, Opus Dei has no monks in their practices, but in the book, the character Silas, who's portrayed as the bad guy, um, is a monk. So that doesn't even comply with that fact. And also, I mean, there's speculation that 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 the practices portrayed um, in the book of Opus Dei are the real-life practices, but, I mean, there's a lot of controversy about that. There's no concrete evidence because people... I mean, you have ex like previous members who um, of Opus Dei who claim that that is what they did, and there were many bad things that happened <coughs> in that group. But then you've got actually spokespeople from the um, from I suppose you could call it a religion in a way, but but I mean some people consider it a cult. But um, but then you've got spokespeople for it who say that that's not how it's portrayed at all, and the Pope the 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 current pope and the previous pope actually approve of Opus Dei, and they've never openly rejected it. When you're saying their uh, beliefs and stuff, you mean like corporal mortic- mortification, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah, like those about. really kind of the intense um, things that are portrayed in the movie and the book. So, one of the groups that they talked about is a little more accurately portrayed: the um, Knights Templar, who were supposed to be the ones who discovered the whole secret about Mary Magdalene and everything else uh, because during the crusades there was actually an organization that called themselves the knights templar who went to israel in search of some sort of great treasure uh a lot of it's been hyped up about them because no one ever really knows if they found anything or what happened and there's a great deal of mixed um representation of them in the media nowadays like uh, the movie kingdom of heaven portrayed the knights templar as being just a really brutal group of people who you know, were killing everyone they saw practically. Whereas Dan Brown shows them as being a lot more kind of noble in their intents and their actions. So th- there's that's probably one of the only organizations that they represented with some level of uh, accuracy in the book. So were the Knights Templar um, after the Holy Grail, like as in a cup or do you know that, Kyle? It's not really known what they were after. Um, all that's really known is the name of the organization, and the only reason people know that is because they I think they had some level of success with whatever their mission was, whether that was just killing you know massive numbers of Muslims and Jews, or whether it was actually finding um, the Holy Grail, quote unquote, is something entirely different. No one, no one really knows. Yeah, so in the book, it proposed the idea of the Holy Grail being a person. What do you guys think about that? Um, Like I said before, to me, it's not really 
that big of a deal. I think maybe um, I remember talking to Kyle about it earlier, and he was saying how it's sort of hard to um, base history on a painting. Like The Last Supper, um, in the book, Dan Brown says um, that it's sort of, in the painting, it shows um, that Mary Magdalene did uh, have Jesus' baby. And to me, that's sort of like, it almost seems a bit far-fetched to sort of base it on a painting. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And the idea of the Holy Grail as a person, I suppose, it, the logic that Dan Brown uses to connect it is relatively solid if we take his word, you know, which you kind of have to in some ways, um, as to the meaning of certain symbols and certain words. But the problem with that really is, is that he uses almost like a 12-step method to connect a cup to Mary Magdalene, the person. So it's really far-fetched in that sense because and it could work, but it would take a lot of faith and a lot of coincidence for his idea to work. Yeah, because, like, uh, yeah, he was saying the whole thing about the painting and how um, the chalice is supposed to represent women and how the uh, in The Last Supper by Da Vinci, um, the people were shaped like a chalice, so that would mean that, like, the Holy Grail is a person, like a woman. I, that, that was far-fetched, but I guess in a way it does make sense. Well, yeah, and so many things... So, so much of the misconceptions about Mary Magdalene were created through paintings. Like um, the idea, the common idea that she was a prostitute came from uh, this, I think, third century painting of her with like red hair that she had down over her shoulders, which was a sign in those days of sexual impropriety, which is totally and completely ridiculous because, first of all, how would they know what she looked like? And, I mean, she lived in Israel, so odds are she was dark-skinned and dark hair, so she probably didn't have red hair. And fashions, fashion standards and meanings change over time, so you can't say just because this is what our painting looked like, that's what she must have been like. And even so, I mean, even if she did have red hair, it doesn't mean she's a prostitute. That's just kind of, like, crazy. Yeah. Jonquilin, <laughs> I remembered you mentioning earlier about how you thought, like, that kind of the interesting piece of the chalice and the like the kind of beautiful piece about it is that it like talk it kind of gave women more of a role um yes i i remember um reading about it and also looking up there are the gnostic gospels the books that weren't included in the bible and in those they find more positive things about women and i thought that was interesting how those were sort of left out and it's sort of like almost a way of really degrading women because in the early church women were actually a big part of converting people and things and I think even like the pre-Christianity world I remember I think it's the word sinister yeah that um has the root word of left in it and left is supposed to represent the woman's side of things and so it's always been like women have been degraded in a way and even through Christianity in something that they could have really had power in and could have been an equal player in. 
Yeah, and I guess that kind of led to like the witch hunts too. That every woman that had an open mind was a witch or something. That she was evil, like close to the devil and like sinister. Yeah, and that's mentioned in the books too. <laughs> yeah. and it's not, and it's it's doesn't it? They say that in the book that like I think it was like five million. It gave it gave an exact number, but there is no number of how many women died in the witch hunts. So. Yeah, you can't be So sure. that's another one of those kind of false things that's in the book. Well, and it's interesting enough that up until around the 11th century, uh, Mary Magdalene was considered one of the apostles. Like there were about 60 and then um, somewhere 1,200 or so, the the church decided that only men could be apostles and they narrowed it down to the 12 that exist nowadays. But the whole, and she, even though she remains a saint to this day, which I find interestingly enough that they would make someone who they consider a prostitute into a saint but so much of the so much of the parts like Jonklin said that were had to do with women that would give women some level of authority and power within the church and influence were cut out during the council of Nicaea where Constantine gathered a bunch of old rich men to decide what parts they would put in the bible and what parts they wouldn't mm-hmm. as kind of a censoring tool for what they thought would help promote their power more within the empire. And in the book, it did talk about the Council of Nicaea, and it kind of said that Constantine just kind of like took over everything and tried to, and made man like higher than woman, especially in Christianity and the church. And it turns out that, well, in the book, I don't know if this is true, that Constantine was um, pagan originally, but he just switched to Christianity because that's what his overall public wanted. It's... The historically he was um, a pagan before he quote unquote received a religious vision, but the idea of a political move makes a lot more sense in that kind of context. But yeah, does anybody have anything else to add? Um, one more thing. I thought it was interesting how they sort of automatically made a woman who could have had power a prostitute. A prostitute sort of making it seem like oh, women are the devil and they're only there to seduce men and create their downfall. And I just thought that was sort of interesting how it always seems to go back to that. Yeah. Um, um, I wanted to add just as a kind of a reflection just quickly of the book, just kind of my overall thought on it was that even though it didn't, like it was full of false facts <laughs> but um even though it was full of that it was um still a really interesting mystery and um but it, it maybe the uh intention of dan brown wasn't necessarily to um like use those facts in that way but maybe more to um kind of just have people question religion because people take it for granted and follow it just because it's there but Maybe his intention was actually just to make people make their own theories and question it. Yeah, that's a good idea. And thank you guys so much, but we're out of time. So, yay, now back to Miles. That was off the hook. Da Vinci rocks, man. Now here's another person who rocks, Diana Baron Moore. Woohoo, I rock. Yay. Um, so now we're going to hear the Julio Black remix of Fusebox off the Monsoon Wedding soundtrack. And after that, we're going to hear Chega de Saudade off the compilation disc Sentimiento Brasileiro. The cello is uh, Yo-Yo Ma, and this song features vocalist Rosa Passos. So here it is. Mm. 
Ta-da! Here's Mariah with Calendar. Hello, everyone. Are you ready for this week's great calendar? Well, ready or not, here it is. January 22nd and 23rd from 6 to 8 p.m. YDI is holding auditions for kids ages 11 to 13 to be part of a documentary video project. You can learn to use digital media equipment and participate in making a documentary. You can call 242-7306, extension 19, for more information. Amy Beale Youth Spirit Award is looking for 2007 nominations. Nominees must be ages 13 to 26 to be eligible. Nominees must also be actively involved in community service. And the deadline for submission is Friday, February 9th at 3 p.m. You can call 244 9505 extension 10 to have a nomination packet mailed to you or download it from nmvoices.org. Friday, January 26, the Cradle Project is extending an invitation to their silent auction fundraiser. The kickoff party will be at Factory on 5th, located at 1715 5th Street Northwest in Albuquerque. There will be a silent art auction ballet dancers, food, and music. Check out the website for more information if you want to be involved. The website is the www.thecradleproject.org. January 26th through 27th, the play The Magdalena Cantata will be performed at the Albuquerque Journal Theater at the Spanish National Hispanic Cultural Center at 8 p.m. to and 2 p.m. Sunday matinee. The Magdalena Cantada dramatizes the relationship of two women, a young runaway drug addict and a prostitute who bursts and then abandons her son, and a sophisticated woman artist who uses a wheelchair who is perpetually haunted by nightmares of a dead of her dead twin. For more information, you can go to nhccnm.org. Princeton University Summer Joe journalism program is holding a 10-day all-expenses-paid summer journalism program held in August at Princeton University for students from under-resourced financial backgrounds. To apply for the program, you must meet the following qualifications. One, you must be entering your junior or senior year of high school in fall 2007. Two, you must have at least a 3.0 GPA. Three, you must have demonstrated an interest in journalism. 
And four, the combined income of your custodial parent slash guardian must not exceed $25,000, $45,000. The application must be postmarked by February 15th. For more information, you can go to our youth radio website, www.kunm.org backslash youth radio. Trick Block Company presents the 7th Annual Revolutions International Theater Festival. It is a three-week celebration of world theater in venues throughout Albuquerque. It will be going on from January 18th through February 4th. The Revolutions Festival offers Albuquerque audiences the unique opportunity to sample the best of world stages with artists from Mexico, the UK, Australia, Canada, Colombia, Germany, and Ukraine, as well as Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Albuquerque. For more information, you can go to www.tricklock.com. And lastly, the Native American Community Academy is beginning enrollment for the 2007-2008 school year. They are accepting applications for grades 6 through 8, and you can call 266-0992 or visit www.nacaschool.org for more information. That's our youth radio calendar for the week. All this information is posted on our website, www.kunm.org backslash youth radio. Now back to Miles. Thank you, Mariah. Our wonderful show is now coming to an end, so it's time for credits. Tonight's awesome producer was Nicole Beatty. Our sexy engineer was Yan Yan Guzman. Our sweetly cool music host was Diana Baron Moore. Our awesome calendar was done by the fantastic Mariah Gonzalez. Our Da Vinci Code Roundtable was hosted by me, Lucia Martinez. Our splendid interviews were also done by the fantastic Mariah Gonzalez. Our adult co-conspirators are Alicia Cedillo, Marcos Martinez, Roman Garcia, and Loretta Rayel. Others in Youth Radio are Jaren Kai, Paolo Castillo, Anne Nguyen, and Philip Riley. That's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Next up is Spoken Word. No, now we have some astounding music from Diana. You forget, Lucia. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, so the last thing I have for you this evening is two tracks off Zap Mama's album Ancestry in Progress. The first is Leçon Numero 5, uh, which is something number five. And the second track is What Did You Say, which is spelled as one word, and it excludes any T's or O's. And that song features Scratch. If you're interested in seeing tonight's playlist, you can catch any info you missed on KUNM's website and look under Playlists. Have a fabulous week. Leçon numéro 5 Variation de rythme vocaux Sans tempo Suivez et articulez les phrases suivantes Ce n'est pas compliqué Laissez-vous aller
Support for Youth Radio comes from the Cerdna Foundation and from the New Mexico Community Foundation, investing in young people ages 0 to 24 and in nonprofits working with kids. More information at nmcf.org or 505-820-6860. The New Mexico Community Foundation, growing our future together.